Hello, welcome to Asbury. My name is Pastor Mike. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as interviews and special devotionals. We hope these messages inspire and support you as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions or want to have further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking out our website at asburymaitland.org. As you have listened to me preach over the past six months or so, hopefully one of the things you've picked up on is that I like to weave stories into my messages. Uh, I'm a big fan of stories. I'm a huge fan of stories. I love telling stories. I love hearing stories. And in my conviction, one of the best elements of any good story is a plot twist. You know what I'm talking about? Just when we think we know everything about the story, just when we think we have the story all figured out, suddenly a plot twist comes in and calls into question, brings into question everything we thought we knew about the story. The narrator isn't who we thought they were. The hero of the story is really the villain. The weakness of a character is actually their strength, or what we thought the character needed to survive actually led to their destruction. And so earlier this week, as I was putting together this message, I decided to go on Google. You've heard of Google before, right? And I decided to Google, what are some of the greatest plot twists in movie history? What are some of the best blessed, some of the best plot twists in movie history, and these are some of the responses that I received. Now, granted, these weren't all the responses. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the responses that popped up on Google. Uh, Number one, the 1968 movie, Planet of the Apes, starring Charlton Heston. Uh, Kathy, you're nodding your head because you know where this is going. Uh, Charlton Heston plays this character. Uh, His last name is Taylor, and Taylor is an astronaut, and his spaceship crash lands on this planet, and the planet is run by apes. Human beings are actually subject to apes. They're inferior to apes, uh, or they're considered to be inferior. And so the whole time, Taylor assumes that this planet is located far away from Earth. But then what happens toward the end of the movie is he's walking along the beach, and what does he see? A broken down Statue of Liberty. And that's when he comes to realize that this planet isn't far away from Earth, that this planet is Earth in the future, that Earth has been overtaken by apes. Or what about this one? The 1980 movie, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, which is part of the Star Wars franchise. Uh, Luke Skywalker, the Jedi, the good guy, the main character, uh, he assumes that Darth Vader, the villain, has killed his father. And there's this intense fight scene that happens between the two of them. And then during this fight scene, Darth Vader reveals the truth about Luke's father, what happened to Luke's father, which is five words. What are those five words? Luke, I am your father. One of the most dramatic lines in movie history. Even if you're not a Star Wars fan, personally, I'm not a Star Wars fan, I'm sorry. But even if you're not a Star Wars fan, there's a strong possibility you know that line. Uh, One more example. This movie came out back in 1999, which is hard to believe that 1999 was 22 years ago. Uh, but The Sixth Sense, starring Bruce Willis. Oh, you all know this one now, right? Now you're warmed up. I should have done more. (laughs) Bruce Willis plays a psychologist, and he encounters this little boy, and this little boy has this unusual ability. He's able to see people who are dead. Uh, But what makes this ability even more strange and bizarre is that these people don't actually know that they're dead. And what do we find out about Bruce Willis' character? He's dead. He's one of these dead people. Uh, that actually what had happened is he had been killed by one of his patients. Uh, His patient had murdered him, and he didn't realize it. And so this whole time, he thought that he was helping out this little boy, but actually the little boy was helping him, 
except the fact that he was dead. Plot twists are one of the best elements of any story. Plot twists have this way of engaging us, disturbing us, unsettling us, holding us in suspense. Well, as we wrap up our series on the book of Ruth today, uh, Ruth is in the Old Testament. As we wrap up our series on Ruth, uh, this series that we've been in for over a month, we're going to encounter several plot twists in this story. But like any plot twist worth their salt, these plot twists are going to tie the whole story together, and they're going to show us the redemptive hand of God from beginning to end. They're going to demonstrate why we chose to entitle this series, Ruth, A Story of Redemption. And so before we go any further, let's begin by recapping the story. I realize that some of us are joining the series for the first time, so let's start by recapping the story. So the story of Ruth takes place somewhere around 1100 BC, maybe 1080 BC, somewhere in that region. And it's set during the politically chaotic period of the judges. Uh, we thought that we've lived through some politically chaotic periods. Amen. This was an extremely politically chaotic period. There was no king in Israel. There was no established leadership for the people of God. The writer of Judges says several times in his text, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Not everybody was obedient to God. Everybody listened to God. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And during this turbulent period, there was a famine that took place in Bethlehem, which is ironic because in Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. So basically the house of bread has no bread. There's no food there. And so this one family makes the tough choice to leave Bethlehem and to go to this place called Moab, just outside the promised land. The family included this man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malone and Kilion. And then when they got to Bethlehem, or I'm sorry, Moab, then when they got to Moab, tragedy struck for this family because Elimelech dies. And then to make matters even worse, the two sons pass away, leaving Naomi a childless widow with two Moabite daughters-in-law who were also childless widows. Well, then Naomi hears this report that there's food in Bethlehem, uh, that there are crops again there. And so she decides to journey back there, and she has her daughters-in-law with her, but then on the way there, she tries to convince her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab, thinking that it would be better for them. They have their whole lives in front of them. Why go with me into Bethlehem? Well, the one daughter-in-law is convinced. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, she is not convinced. She insists on staying with her mother-in-law. Despite her mother-in-law's protest, she goes with her mother-in-law into Bethlehem. And then when they get to Bethlehem, they literally have nothing to eat. Well, fortunately, there was a law in place in Israel and this is specified in the book of Leviticus, the law said that wealthy landowners, so if you were a wealthy person, affluent, you had land, you were not permitted to harvest your whole field, but instead you had to leave a portion of your field unharvested so that poor people and foreigners could harvest from it. And Ruth fit these categories because she was poor, but she was also a foreigner. She was a Moabite living in the land of Israel. So knowing that this law was in place, she says to her mother-in-law, I'm gonna go harvest in somebody's field. And the field where she ends up belongs to this very wealthy and influential Israelite man named Boaz. And what's special about Boaz, and Ruth didn't realize this at the time, is that Boaz is related to Elimelech, her father-in-law who has passed away. And because he's related to Elimelech, uh, he has the ability to marry Ruth because of how Jewish marriages worked in that culture. So Ruth is minding her own business. She's harvesting in Boaz's field. Well, eventually she catches the attention of Boaz, the owner of the field, and Boaz um, meets with her. They share this great connection. They really hit it off. So she goes home, and she tells her mother-in-law how she's been in Boaz's field. 
And her mother-in-law, Naomi, gets all excited because she starts to put together these pieces. She knows who Boaz is, how Boaz is related to Elimelech. This is how God's going to redeem this tragedy. Boaz is going to marry Ruth. Boaz is going to propose marriage to Ruth. So she encourages Ruth to continue to work in Boaz's field, thinking that one day this proposal is going to happen. Pretty soon, this proposal is going to happen. Only it doesn't happen. At least three months go by, and nothing occurs. So Naomi, being the very shrewd, very smart, very clever person that she is, she takes matters into her own hands, and she comes up with this plot that's on the shady side. I probably got embarrassed last week as I spoke about it. But we can't argue with the results because it works. In a nutshell, Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz. She doesn't wait for Boaz to propose. Instead, she proposes marriage herself, and Boaz says, yes, he accepts the proposal. There's a problem. Boaz reveals to Ruth that there's actually another man more closely related to Elimelech than he is. So technically, this other guy who Ruth doesn't know, he is first in line to redeem Ruth. This is what Boaz says to Ruth during the night in a conversation that they share. This is the passage we stopped with last week. While it's true, Boaz says, that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who was more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself, and I lie down here until morning. So as we come to the very end of the story, chapter four, suspense is heavy. Tension fills the air, right? We're on the edge of our seat, and we're wondering what's going to happen next. Is Boaz going to marry Ruth? Is this other guy going to marry Ruth? Well, we get the answer in chapter four. But it's also in chapter four, as we're going to see today, that we encounter plot twists that we were not anticipating. So with all this being said, I'll listen carefully to what it says here in Ruth chapter four, verse one. Uh, we're going to begin our journey through um, the fourth chapter of Ruth. So Boaz has just told Ruth that he's going to find out in the morning if this other man will redeem her. Well, this is what happens next. It says, Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, come over here. Let's sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Now, there are two separate but very closely related concepts at work in this passage. The first concept we've already spoken about in this series, and that would be the concept of levirate marriage. Can you say this with me? Levirate marriage. That in Israelite culture, thousands of years ago, if a man passed away leaving his wife without any children, then another male relative, ideally the brother, but if a brother wasn't available, another guy could do this, but another male relative had an obligation to step in, to marry the widow, to have children with her, and the first son born to this couple would carry on the name of the deceased. He would not actually have the name of the biological father. Instead, he would have the name of the deceased because having a son to carry on your name was everything back then. It was incredibly important. Otherwise, it would be as if you never even existed. Your name would be blotted out from the earth. But then closely related to levirate marriage was this concept of a family redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, depending on the translation. Um, some older translations say kinsman redeemer. More modern ones say family redeemer. But not only was having a child to carry on your name everything back then, but having land was everything back then too. Uh, and Israel was a small country, so you wanted to have some land. 
And ideally, your land would stay in the family, that your sons would come to inherit your land once you had passed away. But let's say because of unforeseen circumstances that you are in a position where you are forced to sell your land. Well, then what would happen next is another male relative, he would act as the family redeemer and he would buy the land for you and give it back to you. And so Boaz reveals to Ruth that he's not first in line to marry Ruth. He's not first in line to redeem Ruth. Instead, this other gentleman is. So what Boaz does in verse one of chapter four is he goes to the town gate. Now, back then, the town gate would have been like the community center, the downtown area. You know, everybody would have to pass by the town gate on the way to work uh, as they would go to the fields. Business transactions would happen at the town gate. And so Boaz is at the town gate. He's waiting for this guy to come by. The guy comes by, and Boaz is nice to him. He's friendly to him. Hey, friend, come over here. Sit down. I want to chat with you. So the guy sits down, and this is what happens next. Verse 2. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Because when you were deciding an important legal matter back then, you wanted to have witnesses. Just like today, when we decide legal matters, we need witnesses. This protects both parties and ensures integrity to the process. So now we have Boaz sitting down. We have this guy sitting down. We have these 10 witnesses sitting down. By my count, that's a dozen people. Well, as a dozen people are sitting down, and other people are walking by, they're on their way to work. Of course, they're slowing down. They're wondering what's going on. What's happening over here? This is much more interesting than working in the field. And so this crowd begins to form around. And people begin to press in on them. These two guys are about to do business. Here's what happens next. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. Folks, everybody would have known Naomi. Bethlehem probably only had a few hundred people. At the time of Jesus, Bethlehem had about 500 people, and this is about 1,000 years before Jesus, if not longer, so it was probably even smaller than that. And remember in chapter 1, when Naomi came into Bethlehem, the whole town was talking about it. Isn't this Naomi who was married to Elimelech? So when he says, you know Naomi, everybody knew Naomi. You know Naomi who came back from Moab? She is selling the land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought that I should speak to you about it, so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I am next in line to redeem it after you. This is an offering that this guy cannot refuse. Boaz just gives it to him on a golden platter. Now, what's really confusing about this passage is this whole line about Naomi selling the land. What land is Naomi selling? If you've joined us for every sermon in this series, you have never heard about this land because this land is never mentioned in chapter one. It's not mentioned in chapter two. It's not mentioned in chapter three. This is the first time as the reader we're hearing about this land. What land is this that Naomi is selling? Well, there are different theories about this and scholars debate about this, but what had likely happened is that when Naomi and Elimelech had left for Moab, that they had land in Bethlehem that they decided to sell off only they didn't sell off the title to the land. Instead, they sold off the right to harvest from the land. In other words, it was like they were leasing the land out because their intention was to come back to Bethlehem. They didn't want to stay in Moab forever. They wanted to come back to Bethlehem. They wanted their sons to inherit the land one day. Well, then what happened in Moab is Elimelech dies, Kilion dies, Malone dies, 
And so Naomi comes back all by herself, and she doesn't have legal rights to this land. Unfortunately, because that's the way it was back then uh, for women. It wasn't right, it wasn't fair, but she didn't actually have access to this land, so she was in a position where she was forced to sell it. If only a family redeemer would come in and redeem it for her. Well, that's where this guy comes in. And if we think about it, this is a bargain for this guy. This is a really good deal for this guy because if he purchases the land, he doesn't have to worry about Elimelech getting this land back because what happened to Elimelech? He's dead. Elimelech's sons are dead. Malone is dead. Killian is dead. And it's not as if Naomi is in a position where she's about to have more children. She's way past childbearing years. And even if this land comes with Naomi and he has to take care of her, provide for her, It'll take a little bit of resources to care for her, but come on, it's really not that big of a deal. She's just one person. In the grand scheme of things, this guy is getting a bargain. He gets this nice big piece of land that he can harvest from, that he can get rich off of, and that one day he can pass off to his sons. The land he assumes is going to go to his family instead of Elimelech's family. And not only that, but he's going to look noble in front of all these people. Do you know Naomi? She lost her husband. She lost her sons. Poor old Naomi. Everybody feels bad for her. He's going to step in. He's going to help out Naomi. He's going to look admirable in front of this whole town. So unsurprisingly, the guy responds in this way. Uh, this is the second half of verse 4. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. It's a done deal. Let's go to lunch. If Ruth had been in the crowd that day, and the text doesn't say this, but I can just kind of picture Ruth. She's off in the distance, and she hears this guy say, all right, I'll redeem it. It's like a punch in the stomach. Really? God, what's going on here? I thought Boaz was going to do it. I thought this was the plan that you had for me. Boaz isn't finished. Boaz isn't done. You see, folks, we thought that Naomi was the only clever one in the story, Boaz is also incredibly smart and shrewd in what he does next. It's like a fish. This fish is hooked on uh, to the line. Uh, he's got him. So listen to what Boaz says here. This is genius. This is brilliant. <laughs> then Boaz told him, of course, I love those words, of course. Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires, it doesn't suggest, it requires, it mandates that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow, that way she can have children who would carry on her husband's name and keep the land where? In the family. How do you like them apples? You want to redeem the land? You want to fulfill your family obligation? All right, do it. But here's what you need to know. When Naomi came back into Bethlehem, she didn't come by herself. Instead, she had one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malone. And this daughter-in-law, Ruth, she is ready to be remarried. She wants to have children should the opportunity arise. So by acquiring this land, because of leverant marriage, you actually have an obligation to step in and to marry her and to have children with her. And the first son born to the two of you will not carry on your name. Instead, he's going to carry on the name of the deceased. Oh, and by the way, this land is not going to go to your sons. Instead, the land is going to go to this son. The land is not going to go to your family. Instead, the land is going to go to this family. So with all this information in mind, you still want to proceed forward? You still want to move ahead with this transaction? And folks, 
we could just picture this guy getting all uncomfortable. He's feeling awkward. He's looking down. He's sweating. And then he mumbles out these words. Then I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Notice how ironic that first sentence is. I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied. You see the irony there? Folks, it's not that he can't redeem the land. It's that he won't redeem the land because he's afraid of endangering his own estate. Make no mistake about it. This was a dereliction of duty. This was an abdication of responsibility. Uh, one of the greatest tragedies of the early 20th century was the sinking of the Titanic, which of course happened in 1912, uh, hit an iceberg. 1,500 people lost their lives that night in April. Well, what's really unfortunate, and a lot of us might not know this, is that there was actually another ship in the vicinity of Titanic. It was about 20 miles away. It was called the SS Californian. And the crew saw the distress signals coming from Titanic and chose not to do anything about it. You know why? Because they were afraid of the icebergs in the area. This guy was afraid of endangering his own estate, so he chose not to fulfill his ethical, legal, moral obligation. He says to Boaz, you redeem the land. I can't do it. You know what's really interesting is, this guy is never mentioned by name in the story. You notice that? Even when Boaz speaks to him, he says, hey, friend, sit down. Now, Boaz knows who this guy is. He's a relative of Boaz. He's related to Boaz. The narrator probably knew who this guy was, and yet this guy is never mentioned by name. Why is that? Well, maybe the reason is the focus is not to be on this guy. Instead, the focus is to be on Boaz because Boaz does what this guy will not do. Boaz does what this guy refuses to do. Boaz gives up his own resources, his own interests, his own money, and he sacrifices what he has for the sake of Naomi and Ruth. Listen to what happens next. Uh, this is verses 7 through 10. It says this, Now in those days, and this is just after the guy says to Boaz, I want you to buy it. Now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. That's pretty strange, isn't it? The thinking here, and we talked about this last week, what we have to understand about Jewish culture is that Jewish culture is very visual. And so I think the thinking here was, you take off your sandal, you give it to the other person. That was your way of saying, I'm giving up my right to walk on this land as the owner, as the buyer. This is your land instead. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal. As he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malone. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malone, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. So in a nutshell, Boaz becomes the redeemer that Ruth and Naomi desperately need. And then as the story develops, what happens next in chapter 4? Well, we discover that Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a son named Obed. So get this. The story that began in chapter 1 with a famine and three funerals ends in chapter 4 with a wedding and a baby. Now that's a redemptive plot twist. But the redemptive plot twists don't stop there. Because this child 
that Ruth gives birth to? Well, he grows up, gets married, has a son named Jesse. Jesse grows up and gets married. Do you remember the name of one of Jesse's sons, the most famous son of Jesse? David. David, who served as Israel's greatest king, the man after God's own heart. This is what it says in Ruth chapter four, verse 22. This is the very last verse of the book of Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Now, why end the story in this way? Why end this story by looking ahead toward David? How does the story of Ruth begin? In chapter one, verse one. Listen again to what it says here. We talked about this verse the very first week. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel. In other words, in the days when there was no king in Israel. Nobody listened to God. Nobody followed God. It was violent. It was turbulent. It was chaotic. In those days, God provided for God's people by sending the greatest king of all, David. The man after God's own heart. David, who wasn't perfect but did a lot of great things. David, who united the 12 tribes of Israel. David, whose throne God established forever. But wait, there's another redemptive plot twist that comes into play here. Who did David become the ancestor of? The greatest human being who has ever walked our planet. And who would that be? Jesus. Check out what it says here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. Folks, this is the very first verse of the New Testament. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of who? A descendant of David and of Abraham. Do you see all the different layers of redemption in the story? Uh, I have them up here on the screen. Number one, there's the redemption of Naomi and Ruth from a tragic situation that they could not get out of. Number two, there's the redemption of Elimelech's family line so that Elimelech and his sons weren't forgotten about forever. Number three, there's the redemption of the people of Israel from a very turbulent, chaotic period. And then finally, number four, there's the redemption offered to all human beings through the person of Jesus Christ. We serve a God who specializes in redemption. We serve a God who refuses to let the worst thing be the last thing. Who even when all hope is lost and tragedy abounds, finds a way to restore things. Back in the late 1990s, Robert Van Sumeren did the unthinkable. He got drunk, got a BB gun, he went into a convenience store, and he robbed it. And then when he finished there, he went to a bank, he had his gun with him, he gave a note to the teller, telling the teller that he had a gun, and he robbed the bank. He was only 19 years old. Had his entire life in front of him. Well, eventually the police caught him, he was arrested, and he was sentenced by a judge to spend six years in prison. Well, when he got out of prison, he decided that he was going to open himself up to the redemptive work of God. So he got the education that he didn't have, went to community college. After he finished the community college, he went to a state university, got his undergraduate degree. He got married, had some children. Well, then he decided that he was going to attend law school at night while working during the day. So after a few years of doing that, he graduated with his law degree. He passed the bar exam. And then after this very intense screening process with the ethics committee, he eventually became an attorney. And get this, the judge that swore him in as an attorney was the very same judge who had sentenced him to prison 
earlier in his life. We got a picture of Robert and this judge up here on the screen. Imagine that the very judge who sentences you to prison also becomes the same judge to swear you in as an attorney. Talk about a redemptive plot twist. Similar to the redemptive plot twist that we find in the story of Ruth. We serve a God of redemption. We serve a God who turns things around. A God who is always working for the good. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, you are a God of redemption. You are a God who turns things around. You refuse to let the worst thing be the last thing. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your love, for your majesty, for your power, for the way that you change our stories. And you bring everything together for good. God, this is something that only you are capable of doing. We pray this morning that as your people, we would continue to recognize your redemptive work, that we would open ourselves up to it, and that we would join you by your grace in this redemptive work as you seek to restore human lives and put things back in the way that you intend for them to be. Thank you, God. Thank you. We worship you. We praise you. We celebrate you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.